begin this hour of the Sunrise Morning Show on this 4th of July with a prayer to Mary Immaculate, the Immaculate Conception, of course, the patroness of the United States of America. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Most Holy Trinity, we put the United States of America into the hands of Mary Immaculate in order that she may present the country to you. Through her, we wish to thank you for the great resources of this land and for the freedom which has been its heritage. Through the intercession of Mary, have mercy on the Catholic Church in America. Grant us peace. Have mercy on our president and on all the officers of our government. Grant us a fruitful economy born of justice and charity. Have mercy on capital and industry and labor. Protect the family life of the nation. Guard the precious gift of many religious vocations. Through the intercession of our mother, have mercy on the sick, the tempted, sinners, on all who are in need. Mary, Immaculate Virgin, our mother, patroness of our land, we praise you and honor you and give ourselves to you. Protect us from every harm. Pray for us that acting always according to your will and the will of your divine son, we may live and die pleasing to God. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Good morning, happy Independence Day, and welcome to this special edition of the Sunrise Morning Show. I'm Anna Mitchell, and on this 4th of July holiday, Matt Swaim and I are pleased to share with you some very interesting interviews on the Catholic angles to our nation's founding, as well as on some Catholic angles to current issues that we still grapple with today related to freedom and democracy. Hope you can stick around and enjoy the entire hour ahead. We'll get started right now at two minutes past the hour. Father Charles Connor is joining us. His book is called Pioneer Priests and Makeshift Altars, A History of Catholicism in the 13 Colonies. Father, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you, Annie. I'm most honored to be with you this morning. Father, when we think of the work of the Founding Fathers, I think we often think of, you know, the Declaration of Independence, which declared that all men are created equal, or the Constitution, the First Amendment of which establishes the freedom of religion as a fundamental right of citizens. But that doesn't mean that they all approved of all of the religions that were present in the colonies. What did many of them think of Catholics? Oh, almost to a man, they were extremely anti-Catholic, I would say. One of the uh, best examples of that, and in fact, if you, uh, any serious Catholic would literally be mowed over with with laughter on this one. But, uh, you know, everyone should read John John Adams' Impression of a Catholic Mass. He was out strolling the streets in Philadelphia one afternoon when the Continental Congress had adjourned for the day, and he went into a little St. Mary's and sat in the back of the church, and he wrote to his wife Abigail up in Massachusetts that, that evening, and he uh, described the uh, the the uh, essence of a Catholic Mass as he uh, was trying to figure it out. You know, he was 
talking about these poor wretches fingering their beads, crossing themselves and sprinkling holy water and speaking Latin, not a word of which they understood, and so on and so on and so on. Well, that, that's just a, that, that's a comic example, but the comedy has something far more deep-seated about it, uh, and it's a very, very, very strong uh, anti-Catholic bias. And uh, they were, the, the founding fathers, you mentioned, of course, were really the inheritors of two things. They were the inheritors of the Protestant Reformation, on the one hand, and they were the inheritors of the secular Enlightenment, on the other hand. And uh, as a result, that First Amendment, while it granted religious freedom, uh, what did it do? It bracketed the truth. In other words, the government got out of the truth business. Truth is anything you want it to be. You may make your own definition of truth. We leave you alone. So what they did, of course, was create one nation under God, but one nation under God uh, in, in the, within the context of total or total secularism as far as, the, uh, as far as the foundational documents of the country were concerned. And there's been much, uh, much very, very interesting writing in recent years on looking at the foundational documents of the country from a Catholic perspective and seeing how, as we say, uh, we have a, a fine example of government absolutely getting out of the truth business and, and allowing, uh, allowing each individual to define the truth for himself and herself. What was it like to be a priest in one of the 13 colonies? Well, there were very, very few of them. In fact, by the time we got to the American Revolution, remember we... uh had gotten here as early as 1634, and uh, the the American Revolution was, of course, not until the 1770s, 1776, and so a century and four four decades or so or more later. And even on the eve of the American Revolution, there were only 21 or 22 priests working in the in the American colonies, primarily in Maryland, some in Pennsylvania, and a few others scattered elsewhere. But it was Maryland and Pennsylvania where you found the activity, and uh, you know, depending depending upon the, the period of time we're talking about in that century and a half. Sometimes they would have to say Mass clandestinely. But uh, on the other hand, uh, the, the Jesuits in particular uh, did uh, tremendous work of evangelization and were great, great missionaries and established large manor homes in, in uh, southern Maryland and had some kind of rudimentary education. Uh, at, uh, I'm thinking of St. Francis Xavier in Newtown Manor would be one, and Old Bohemia, which is in Warwick, Maryland, on the eastern shore. Sure, they, they would be they would be great schools, you know, as you and I would understand them. But in any event, those those twenty one or twenty two priests on the eve of the American Revolution met in what is today Bowie, Maryland. It was then the uh, the White Marsh Plantation of the Jesuits, and they they got together and uh, they had a meeting, and they came up with a recommendation that uh, and sent it to Rome that, in their opinion, Father John Carroll should be named the first bishop of the United States. And obviously their recommendation was very much listened to, and he was. Uh, he was created uh, the first bishop of Baltimore. And interestingly, Baltimore extended from the border of Canada to the border of Florida and from the east coast to the east uh, seaboard of the United States to the Mississippi River. So, I mean, it was a phenomenal amount of territory that Carroll had to govern from 1790 when he was consecrated until 1808 when uh, when uh, four other dioceses, or what we call suffragan seas, were carved from the initial uh, 
uh, the initial Diocese of Baltimore. So uh, it was uh, it was the life of a missionary. It was hard, it was rugged, uh, and uh, many, many miles on horseback, uh, whether you're talking Maryland or Pennsylvania. Uh, some of them had a somewhat more, the priests of Philadelphia had a somewhat more cosmopolitan life, but at the same time, I'm not aware of any of those priests who uh, worked in Philadelphia who did not also uh, go out and uh, act as missionaries to Catholics living, for example, in central Pennsylvania and southern Pennsylvania, and the dioceses of Harrisburg and Allentown today would encompass much of that territory, you know. So it was it was a very, very rugged life they lived, to say the least. Yeah, I would imagine so. Now, I want to ask you about uh, the Revolutionary War. Some might be surprised to learn from you that Catholics who came to America because they were fleeing the English crown actually supported the crown, the monarchy, during the Revolution. Is that right? That's absolutely right. I would say the overwhelming majority of them did. Uh, and uh, the reason, of course, was that they were as careful to read and to hear the uh, political rhetoric of those days and to observe the revolutionary aims and so forth before the, before the conflict ever even began. And uh, it, it seemed to hold out a hope to most of them that their lot had the potential for becoming better uh, if uh, this new government of the United States States became a reality. They saw no light at the end of the tunnel as far as something like returning to England and having a, a better lot there. Not at all. But uh, they thought it was certainly a system which held out some kind of promise, even though they were the victims of a great deal of anti-Catholic bigotry uh, throughout the colonial period and in all of the colonies, with, with no exception, really. Uh, there was a rather substantial group of Catholic loyalists, however, that is, those who were more loyal to the, to the uh, mother country of England. And you found them in Philadelphia. Uh, you found several hundred of them, actually, a surprising number. But men who were, I would say, politically conservative by nature and felt that the, the revolutionary cause might indeed be too revolutionary from a political standpoint. And, and as a result, uh, they were much in favor of maintaining the status quo and not, not breaking with the mother country. They saw more stability in their lives, if you will. So uh, that's another thing that uh, is, is little known, the, the, the Catholic loyalty. And they were found almost exclusively in Philadelphia. But there were, as I say, a couple hundred of them, and they're, they're kind of an interesting study in themselves. Did the Revolutionary War do anything to change the status of Catholics in general? Uh, to a certain degree, th- that is true. There are all kinds of, you notice all kinds of rites of passage for Catholics, but, but uh, th- these things almost seem temporary, uh, at least my reading of it, uh, in the sense that uh, we, we kind of go back into the same mold again. We were about 25,000 strong at the time of the American Revolution, and certainly the, the fighting for the Patriot cause on the part of Catholics, and also the help that France gave in the, the winning of the Revolutionary War, that came through the Treaty of Amity and Commerce in uh, 1778. Uh, the Continental Congress asked for French help, even though they were not very happy a short time earlier with the Quebec Act when the when the British allowed the French the free exercise of their religion in Canada. They thought that Catholicism close, so close to their borders was going to be a very real threat. And they said, they said, uh, you know, they were indignant as Protestant Christian men that this could have been done by England. And then they turned right around and and uh, <laughs> France for support during the Revolutionary War, which France did very, very much give in terms of manpower and also in terms of military aid. But uh, 
um, uh, yes, there was a certain period of time, but uh, as the as the immigrant population then began to uh, really, really swell the Catholic Church, any time from the 1820s on, I would say, uh, the, the real, real forces of anti-Catholic bigotry began to emerge in the United States, and these have been the subject of a lot of serious historical studies as well. And uh, again, you know, you find something like the Civil War was an, an opportunity for Catholics to strongly display their patriotism on both sides, but after the Civil War, you you had things like, uh, oh, the whole case of Mrs. Mary Surratt, who ran the boarding house where John Wilkes Booth lived, and Dr. Samuel Mudd down in southern Maryland, who replaced his, who were who tended to his wound and all this, that raised, because they were both Catholics, you know, Mrs. Surratt and, and, uh, and Dr. Mudd, that brought the anti-Catholicism up again. And so it's, it's kind of an ebb and flow all through our national history. Mm-hmm. Uh, we do find, as I call them, rites of passage, but at the same time, uh, they only seem to last, and then, and then the anti-Catholic bigotry tends to raise its ugly head once again, you know. Yeah, it does ebb and flow, as you say. Now, I want to go back to the early days in the colonies. You mentioned there were, what, like 21 priests. You talked about maybe a a couple hundred Catholics in Philadelphia, which we think of as one of the biggest dioceses in the United States today. I mean, that means that the Catholic Church was very small in the American colonies. How was Catholicism preserved in those times, and how did they endure so much persecution? Well, it was it was preserved, of course. First of all, by the uh, by the faith that so many of these wonderful English Catholics brought over with them, and the uh, Acadians who came down from Canada, who made up so much of the French Catholic population in Philadelphia, and and the various other European countries, Italy and Spain, that found uh, quite a number of people living in the ever growing port city of Philadelphia, and even later and later in New York, and uh, really the the faith was preserved through. Uh, through a, a certain clannishness, when, whenever people are in a distinct minority status, it seems to be that they they very very tenaciously hang on to what they have. And uh, again, this is much to the credit of the Jesuits who instructed people in the faith, uh, and as, who, as I say, had these primary schools in Southern Maryland. It was not possible to get a degree in higher education. You had to go to the continent if you were wealthy enough to get over there. And many went to the English Jesuit school at Saint Omer in, in French Flanders. The Carols, for example, all, all went there to continue their studies. But uh, no, the faith was the faith was preserved by uh, by people who knew uh, how how bigoted the situation was, how small their numbers were, and how they uh, you know it, it seemed to become a uh, an imperative. It seemed to be a real necessity to them. And uh, obviously, as as the scene began to change as we enter into the eighteenth nineteenth uh, century, rather, th- there was already something flourishing and thriving that these immigrants could come to when they came to the United States. And Father, what did a makeshift altar look like? The idea of makeshift altars is simply a reference to these uh, itinerant missionaries. Now, there is uh, much, much truth in it, of course. That the, these uh, these priests would have to go around, and they would just, you know, they'd say mass on a table or a, a chest of drawers or you know whatever the whatever the people might have available in their house, and the people would gather in these homes. And I suppose in the very early days, even the Jesuits themselves, in building up their manor homes before they before they were able to construct chapels adjacent to them or churches or the like, uh, really 
had to say mass in you know uh, kind of primitive fashion. So that's that would be the only uh, idea there behind makeshift altars. But the, there certainly it certainly was true to some degree anyway. Yeah, absolutely. Actually, that brings up one other question, Father. With so few priests, I imagine that some of the faithful were not hearing or participating in Holy Mass every Sunday. Uh, oh, no, oh, not at all. Oh, Mass was a luxury. I mean, if you got there, many of them, if they got there once a month, they were doing very, very good, you know. Mm-hmm. And uh, although one, that raises, uh, Annie, something very interesting, too. You find, uh, well, particularly with the... Uh, Oh, let us say with the growing number of Irish who came here. So many of the Irish who went to the South, uh, because there were so few priests in the South in later years, simply joined Protestant churches and left the faith. Uh, whereas in this earlier period, you, you don't find, uh, I've never run across any kind of significant evidence of people just giving up the faith. Oh, you, you hear individual stories and individual families, but there was no in mass exodus from the faith and, uh, and, uh, you know, going over to some other religious creed in these early days simply because of the absence of missionaries. You do find stories about people gathering in their homes and and reading from Scripture, reading from devotional books, saying rosaries, saying popular prayers together. Uh, You know, the Catholic families would gather usually in one home. That was very, very frequent. But as far as going to confession and uh, going to Mass and so forth, uh, that had to wait till the missionary got there. And uh, as I say, if they saw a priest once a month, they were considered lucky for sure. Wow. The book is called Pioneer Priests and Makeshift Altars, A History of Catholicism in the 13 Colonies. Father Charles Connor will have it linked at sunrisemorningshow.com. Thank you so much for your time today. Oh, I'm delighted to have been with you, Annie. Thanks for having me. You're listening to a special 4th of July edition of the Sunrise Morning Show. We'll be right back. Support from Angel Studios. This July 4th from Angel Studios, who brought you his only son and the chosen, comes a true story of courage and redemption, Sound of Freedom, starring Jim Caviezel, who portrayed Jesus in The Passion, and Academy Award winner Mira Sorvino. Inspired by remarkable acts of bravery, Sound of Freedom unveils the true events of a dangerous mission to save young, innocent lives. A story that shares hope and the power of human resilience. Sound of Freedom. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. In theaters July 4th. Support for the Sunrise Morning Show is from Visiting Angels. Visiting Angels provides experienced, compassionate care to millions of aging adults nationwide by keeping them safe and healthy in the comfort of their own home. Whether it's a short break for caregivers or for long-term assistance, Visiting Angels provides hygiene, meals, light housework, companionship, and more. And services are available up to 24 hours per day. Visiting Angels, online at visitingangels.com. That's visitingangels.com franchise opportunities available. Have you considered energizing your business marketing plan? The Sunrise Morning Show is heard across the U.S. on more than 360 Catholic radio stations, reaching millions of engaged listeners in the heart of the morning commute. You can speak directly to a loyal group of like-minded people who prefer to use businesses who share their faith and values. Find out more about underwriting The Sunrise Morning Show by emailing me, Leah, at sacredheartradio.com. That's Leah at sacredheartradio.com. This is Father Dwight Longenecker. Catholic Radio helps to spread the gospel of Jesus Christ around the world in the fullness of the Catholic faith with sound teaching, orthodox theology, reverent worship. EWTN is doing the very best work we can to spread the fullness of the faith in the Catholic Church throughout the whole world. The world needs EWTN Catholic Radio now more than ever. 
It is the Sunrise Morning Show. I'm Matt Swaim. And Anna Mitchell, I want to wish you not only a happy 4th of July, but also a wonderful feast day of Blessed Pierre Giorgio Frassati, a guy who gets overlooked but should not be overlooked because he is one of the coolest saints of the 20th century. I absolutely agree, and it is a shame that his feast day would be on July 4th, though I do see a lot of young adult groups um, naming themselves for Blessed Pierre Giorgio Frassati. They call him the, the, you know, the Frassati Fellowship or Frassati Groups. Um, around the country, particularly in Dominican parishes, because, of course, Pier Giorgio Frassati was a Dominican tertiary. Some of the things that really amaze me about this young man, he died at age 24, was that he grew up in a wealthy family and never let that stop him from his devotion to the works of mercy. And... I mean, it was his devotion to the works of mercy, to reaching out and serving the poor that eventually led to his death. Yeah, he was serving uh, the sick and the poor uh, during a plague, and he contracted the disease that uh, the people he was working with had. And uh, he died actually only a few months after his 24th birthday. He died actually on the 4th of July in 1925, uh, which is why this is his feast, his birthday into the beatific vision, as it were. Uh, Of course, he's not a saint yet. He was beatified. On May 20th, 1990, and uh, a lot of people praying for his intercession, hoping that that next miracle will come through and we can call him Saint Pierre Giorgio Frassati. Only a matter of time. Only a matter of time. 21 past. We're finally in iced tea season. Carmelites at Mystic Monk Coffee have unique tea flavors that are just as good cold as they are hot. They also, of course, have their coffee selections that taste great over ice as well. And when you click the Mystic Monk link at sunrisemorningshow.com, your purchase will support the Carmelite Monks of Wyoming and the Sunrise Morning Show. Keep those drinks cold in an etched Sunrise Morning Show travel mug, which you can find in our online store. Find our store and link to Mystic Monk Coffee through sonrisemorningshow.com. That's sunrisemorningshow.com. Hello, I'm Father Timothy here, and these are Biblical Impressions. Perhaps one of the most famous wrestling matches of all time is the wrestling match between Jacob and a mysterious heavenly figure. At this point in his life, Jacob is still on his spiritual journey, and in fact, that journey will continue for nearly 20 more chapters in the book of Genesis. In that wrestling match, Jacob was clearly outmatched. One touch from his opponent put his hip out of joint. Yet Jacob refused to yield, and as long as it remained dark, he was allowed to have his way. But one day, light would dawn, and on that day, Jacob would discover that it's far better to allow God to prevail. And on that day, Jacob would receive a new name, Israel. We might reflect on Jacob's wrestling match and recognize that we too would do far better to allow God to prevail in our lives. We could remember the words of our Lord in the Garden of Gethsemane, Father, not my will, but thine be done. For Sacred Heart Radio, I'm Father Timothy Shear. Sunrise Morning Show continues. I'm Matt Swain, joined now by Kevin Schmeising. He's our historical correspondent. 
because you know him from This Week in Catholic History and also his book, A Catholic Pilgrimage Through American History. He also does the Catholic History Trek podcast. So it only seems fitting that as we talk about the history of the United States and the anniversary of our independence that uh, we should invite him on. So, Kevin, good morning. Hey, Matt. Always good to talk about history. So when we're talking about American independence and going back to 1776 and where Catholics play into all of this, uh, I guess my first question is, how do Catholics make it to the colonies in the first place? Yeah, well, there aren't a whole lot of Catholics in the British colonies. So talking about the 13 colonies who declared independence against Great Britain in in 1776, uh, there were just a handful of Catholics, relatively speaking. About 1% of the population is the usual estimate that's given. They were concentrated in just a few colonies, especially in Maryland and Pennsylvania and a few in New York as well. Pennsylvania, relatively tolerant because it was founded by Quakers. So there were Catholics in Pennsylvania. Maryland is the most interesting case. This was a colony founded explicitly to be a haven, a place of religious freedom for British Catholics who were not free back in in mainland Britain. Um, And it started out that way. It began in the 1630s. In 1649, the uh, Congress there, the legislature there, passed an act concerning religious toleration, which was, by the standards of of the day, very tolerant, uh, in particular of Catholics. But over the course of the next few decades, uh, there was conflict between Catholics and Protestants in Maryland. It kind of mirrored conflict that was happening back in England with the Glorious Revolution and so forth. And so eventually Catholics end up being um, not outright persecuted, but discriminated against, um, uh, unable to hold public office and and things like that in, in the ostensibly Catholic colony of Maryland as well. So that was the situation um, at the time of the revolution, basically throughout the colonies, uh, a few Catholics, but um, not really permitted to hold public worship in most of the colonies and not permitted to really have a public role in any of the colonies, although there were exceptions to that, prominent exceptions, um, among them Charles Carroll of Maryland. So this is one of the reasons that I encourage people to pick up your book, A Catholic Pilgrimage Through American History, because St. Mary's City in that first you know, Catholic arrival to the colonies is is uh, it's the first chapter. So uh, let's talk though, and and this is a reason that I asked that question in that way about how Catholics got to the colonies because that's what would become the United States in 1776. Uh, there were already Catholics, uh, a lot of Catholics in the western part of North America in what would later become the United States. So uh, where were they during this time? Yeah, right. We tend to focus the narrative on the British colonies, and that's understandable given the history of the United States, but there were a lot of other things going on in, in European colonies in uh, in the New World, and those would have an impact on what would become the United States. Uh, you mentioned the chapter on St. Mary's City in Maryland, Matt. That's actually the second chapter in the book. You were close, but the first oh, chapter... Oh, I was so close. I didn't have it in front of me. <laughs> the, the first chapter is St. Augustine, Florida. So that would be one of these places. Uh, of course, Spanish North America, the Spanish Empire, 
predominantly, even exclusively Catholic. The Catholic missionary activity went hand in hand with Spanish imperial designs in the New World. And so you have the colony of St. Augustine, which had has its own complicated history. It's, it's Spanish, and then it's French, and then it's British, and then it's Spanish again, and eventually ends up as part of the United States. Um, and there's also Spanish activity, of course, elsewhere in what is now the American South in Texas. Uh, there were Spanish, there were Catholic missions on the Rio Grande in the early 1600s. So this is the same time we're talking about the founding of the Massachusetts colony or the founding of Jamestown. There are Catholic missions um, in what is now Texas. And of course, a little more well-known probably, the California mission chain, which begins just before American independence. In 1769, the first Franciscan mission there under the presidency of St. Junipero Serra. Mission San Diego, 1769. So all during the time that the revolutionary turmoil is happening along the eastern coast in the, in the British colonies, during that same time, missions are being founded in California in the late 1700s and early 1800s. And then we haven't mentioned yet French North America, again, a center of Catholic activity. Um, this is in what is now northern New York and New England, places that would eventually become states in the United States, Maine and New York, and also throughout the Mississippi River Valley and the Great Lakes region. Uh, so you had Catholic missions, Catholic priests working along the Mississippi River in what is now Missouri, Illinois, um, Indiana. Indiana is not along the Mississippi, but part of the same uh, river, uh, river system and also along the Great Lakes. Uh, so lots of phenomenal Catholic missionaries. We've talked about a lot of those in, in our episodes on This Week in Catholic History. And all of these Catholic communities would be enduring to one extent or another and would eventually become part of the United States. So following the history of, of, uh, of, of the Great Lakes region and of Texas and of California and so forth. Yeah, over a period of time as the Union grew... But, uh, you know, you mentioned Charles Carroll of Carrollton, uh, the only Catholic signer of the Declaration of Independence on July 4th, 1776. Uh, but in terms of uh, the other Catholics, um, names we might know or not know, uh, who are significant figures in the era leading up to the Revolution in those early days of the young United States. I mean, who were some of the Catholics that uh, were, were notable in this period of time leading up to uh, independence and in the establishment of Baby USA. Yeah, well, let's talk more about the Carroll family to start. Uh, you mentioned Charles Carroll. He's the best known being the only Catholic signer of the Declaration of Independence. But he had uh, a cousin, John Carroll, um, who became the first Catholic bishop in the United States. But John also played a role in the revolution, actually. Uh, we talked about French activity in British North America. Well, the French dominated Canada, which by this time was in the control of Great Britain. But Great Britain was uh, uh, sensitive to <laughs> the Catholic position in Canada because it was a predominantly Catholic nation, even so, Catholic region. And so when the colonies declared their independence and began the Revolutionary War and their conflict with Great Britain to, to actually make that independence real, 
they sent a delegation. Well, first of all, they tried to conquer Canada. They wanted Canada to be part of this new nation. Uh, that didn't quite work. And so they sent a delegation to, uh, to treat with the Canadians to try to get them to ally with the United States, with the colonies in their war against Great Britain, or at least to maintain neutrality and not to come in on the side of Great Britain. And so part of that delegation because the, the, the colonists recognized that it, this needed to be sensitive to Catholic issues. And so part of that delegation was John Carroll, this, uh, at the time, Catholic priest who was serving in the colony of Maryland. And along with John Carroll went Charles Carroll and Benjamin Franklin. So that was the group. And then John Carroll had a brother, Daniel Carroll, who was also prominent in politics in Maryland, not quite as well known as his cousin Charles, but Daniel was an important figure as well. He was one of the two signers, the two Catholic signers of the Constitution when that was implemented, ratified a few years after the Declaration of Independence. Uh, Daniel Carroll, along with Thomas Fitzsimmons, who was a representative from the state of Pennsylvania. Well, again, this is just such a fascinating history, and there's so much that we haven't even covered about uh, Catholicism in the early U.S. You know, even... Um, as you're mentioning this, I'm reminded that a lot of founding fathers had some fairly not nice things to say about Catholics. John Adams comes immediately to mind, but George Washington did have some nice things to say about Catholics because, among other things, he had French Catholics fighting alongside him in the Revolution. So it's a fascinating thing to think about. Yeah, George Washington was concerned with keeping up morale among, uh, among his troops, and so he actually there was a there was a holiday in British history that was that was practiced in the colonies, Guy Fawkes Day. You and I have talked about that before, Matt, um, and it it turned into a kind of an anti-Catholic holiday, basically an excuse to vent all kinds of anti-Catholic sentiments and uh, and nastiness. Uh, but George Washington said. In the Continental Army, we're going to discontinue the practice of Guy Fawkes Day. No celebration of Guy Fawkes Day, no venting of anti-Catholic sentiment. And uh, that, was just, that was just the beginning, which he would continue during his time as president, of taking a tolerant line toward Catholics. Um, and that kind of set the tone. It was part of what helped to set the tone of, uh, of a less virulently anti-Catholic uh, dimension to the colonies, with, to the colonies and then the United States vis-a-vis uh, -vis what had happened, uh, you know, elsewhere in the British Empire and especially in Great Britain itself. Well, some of these stories are recounted and some of the places associated with them highlighted in your book, A Catholic Pilgrimage Through American History. I encourage people to go check it out because especially if you're thinking of some great summer road trips and some maybe side trips within that to go see places where Catholics have had an impact here in the history of the USA, uh, definitely go check that out. It's linked at sunrisemorningshow.com. Uh, you can also check out Kevin Schmeezing's podcast, which is called the Catholic History Trek Podcast, and you can check him out through the Freedom and Virtue Institute as well. Kevin, happy 4th of July. We'll talk to you again soon. You too, Matt. Thank you. I'm Matt Swaim, and you're listening to the best of the Sunrise Morning Show. If you'd like to connect with us, go to sunrisemorningshow.com. That's how you can connect with us on Facebook and Twitter, also SoundCloud, where you can access our podcasts. Thanks for listening to the best of the Sunrise Morning Show. It's 35 minutes past the hour. We'll be right back. This is Father Rob Jack with the Catechism Moment. People have often asked me, 
why they have to go to confession. The Catechism teaches that one must confess their sins if they are in a state of mortal sin. Paragraph 2042 also states that we must confess our sins once a year. But are those the only times we ought to make use of the sacrament? Paragraph 1458 teaches this. Without being strictly necessary, confession of everyday faults, which are venial sins, is nevertheless strongly recommended by the Church. Indeed, the regular confession of our venial sins helps us to form our conscience, fight against evil tendencies, and let ourselves be healed by Christ and progress in the life of the Spirit. A big area of focus in healthcare nowadays is preventative medicine. Frequent confession is the same type of preventative medicine for our souls. Our spiritual lives need constant attention. There are temptations that we face every day. We get tired and we get frustrated or we're hurt, and that is when the devil tends to strike us. And while a perfect act of contrition and a devout reception of the Holy Eucharist removes venial sins, the encouragement and the compassion of a good priest confessor helps to strengthen us. The priest becomes for us an instrument of God's mercy who not only has the authority to absolve sins, but can also give us concrete advice on how to seek things that bring us closer to God and also ways to deal with temptation and sin when it occurs. So, if we take seriously the need to address venial sins, it will give us the grace and prudence to avoid mortal sin. I encourage you to make a good confession of your sins every six weeks to two months. That will keep your soul alive with the presence of our merciful God. The Sunrise Morning Show continues on this 4th of July holiday. Hope you're celebrating well. We're joined now by Father David Ehrs, Academic Dean of Mount St. Mary's Seminary in the Athenaeum of Ohio, also editor of the U.S. Catholic Historian Scholarly Journal. Father Endres, good morning. Good morning. You know, we're talking today about the Catholic roots of the American Revolution. All the conversations I've ever had about this have been fairly short because, you know, Catholics were in the United States of America when it started, uh, before it started, but we weren't exactly in all the halls of power. Right, yeah, it's one of those things that I think when a lot of people think about the roots of what becomes the United States and, and obviously our, our colonial beginnings, they tend to completely overlook Catholics. And in some ways that's kind of expected. They were a very, very small minority. We're talking just maybe 1% or 2% of the population. But at the same time, we can look to some folks as examples of leaders, even during this time. One of the things, even though like later we think, okay, you know, the Catholics really started to come into this country with immigration from Germany and Ireland, Really, uh, the start for us would be English Catholic religious refugees who were not lower class or anything like that, but tended to actually be middle and upper class. And so it's not unexpected that when they get to this country, they take on some, some leadership roles. Some might say, well, why weren't the Catholics involved? Why didn't they figure out what was going on with the American experiment? Why didn't the Pope send a whole bunch of bishops and dioceses founded right off the bat? I mean, from the perspective of Rome, this is just another British colony full of Protestants. Exactly. Rome doesn't pay too much attention, and one of the reasons is that uh, we are so small in number that we are technically considered missionary territory. That actually extends all the way into the very early 20th century, believe it or not. So we're part of uh, the emerging church, or what they might call the young churches uh, of the world, uh, even though we like to think of ourselves as rather exceptional as, uh, as Americans. Certainly the European view, especially in the 17th and 18th century, was, was certainly not that favorable. 
And yet there are figures uh, that we can look to to try and figure out how Catholics sort of found their place in the new American experiment. One of them that we have to talk about is George Calvert, or as one of my profs called him, Calvert the Convert. Yeah, exactly. So if you want to look at the the very beginnings of what becomes the the Maryland colony, the proprietary colony, you have to look at uh, the Calvert family. And Maryland becomes, uh, as as many people probably know, like the place for Catholics to go. Now, it doesn't mean that they were ever the majority in Maryland, but it was one of the places that they felt safe to go uh, for a number of reasons. And one of those reasons is because of the founders of the colony had been this Calvert family. So uh, we have the example example here of George Calvert, who is kind of high within uh, the English government, uh, a guy that converts to Catholicism, but then even though he plans to found this colony, actually dies before it can be successfully founded. And so it's actually his oldest son, Cecil Calvert, who becomes then this second Lord Baltimore, based on this gift uh, of the king to found this colony. And so the the monarchs uh, did seed this colony over to to uh, the Calvert family, despite the fact that they were Catholic. That does then result in some problems later, as you get a majority of Protestants within Maryland, the the kind of religious toleration that they wanted and earned and and tried to make uh, the hallmark of the new Maryland colony was actually fairly short-lived. But at least for a time, you could be a Catholic, you could worship openly within the colony of Maryland. It's kind of a mixed story. The, The Calverts come, they're somewhat successful in founding a colony where they could be free as Catholics to worship, but then a lot of that gets erased with a kind of a Puritan-Protestant ascendancy later on. That being said, can you dispel the, the myth once and for all that the state was named Maryland to honor Our Lady, Queen of Heaven and Earth? Yeah, so <laughs> this is a great question that a lot of people don't realize. Well, they think, okay, this is a, a Catholic colony at its foundation, and if it's called Maryland, that has to be for the Blessed Mother. But it's actually for the, for the king's wife, uh, Queen Henrietta Marie, to basically show gratitude to the monarch for, for granting the, the colony. Although we do have a St. Mary's County. Just That's that. true. Yeah, and that actually, as you may know, that was was really one of the focal points for the Catholic immigration from England to the colony. So St. Mary's County probably was majority Catholic, I believe. Uh, it's certainly a, a hotbed for the for the early Catholics. Now I'm going to fast forward a little bit and throw you a little bit of a curveball. You know, Catholics are all kind of eyed with suspicion. Of course, the 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 nation is founded with religious liberty right there in the Bill of Rights. Uh, there's only one. Uh, Catholic signer of the Declaration, and Catholics are such a small percentage. But, you know, when the Knights of Columbus come along, you know, one of the things that they make a point to have as part of their working statement of who they are is patriotism. So this idea that Catholics wanted to let people know that we're still not only Americans, but we're patriotic, too. Yeah, this is one of those things, uh, even if you look at the revolutionary experience, uh, you get the sense that the few Catholics that were here were were not just completely self-interested, which is to say, yes, they wanted a place where they could worship freely, and many of them could be characterized as religious refugees. But I think that it goes beyond that. For if you look at the ones that were involved in uh, the various predecessors to what would be, you know, today Congress, um, the various colonial legislatures, those that were involved, even though they were a few in number, in things like the Constitutional Convention, they they had uh, a vision that was much broader than just their own personal self-interest for freedom of religion. 
they really wanted uh, a new model for governance, a new model for representation. So in that way, you can see them as uh, true patriots, uh, real forerunners to, to our great nation. And so uh, I think that Catholics are a small part of the story, but, but there's certainly a significant uh, part of it as well, uh, even if uh, we do get overshadowed very often. Yeah, I like to think we're a bigger part than we used to be. Get sure. bigger all the time. Uh, well, thanks so, so much, Father David Endress, academic dean of Mount St. Mary's Seminary in the Athenaeum of Ohio, also editor of U.S. Catholic Historian, a scholarly journal. Thank you so much for being with us. Have a great 4th of July. Thanks. God bless you. Thank you again for listening to the special 4th of July edition of the Sunrise Morning Show. Back right after this. Support is from Solidarity HealthShare. Do you have an insurance plan that pays for everything, even things that violate your beliefs? Have you ever felt there has to be a better way, but didn't know you had any options? If you answered yes, I've got some good news for you. There is a better way and a more affordable way. Solidarity HealthShare can save you hundreds of dollars each month while actually supporting your beliefs. Because the best news is that Solidarity HealthShare costs a whole lot less than insurance. It's time to jump in and put your money where your faith is and put some money back into your wallet at the same time. Join Solidarity HealthShare, a faith-based healthcare sharing community. Prices start as low as $384 a month for families. Call to see how much you can save, 844-334-3245. That's 844-334-3245. Solidarity HealthShare, 844-334-3245. Do you like your coffee cold and maybe a little sweet this time of year? Look no further than Mystic Monk Coffee for a variety of flavors that would be perfect for your summer cold brew. And when you click the Mystic Monk link at sunrisemorningshow.com before you buy, we get a commission from your purchase. By the way, our Sunrise Morning Show travel mugs are really good at keeping drinks cold, and you could find those in our online store. Pick out a mug and link to the Mystic Monks through sonrisemorningshow.com. That's sunrisemorningshow.com. The most original Catholic content is on EWTN Radio. Filmmakers Daniela Gurrieri, Fabio Cabrini, and Christine Wohar talk about the life and spirituality of this saint in the making on EWTN Live at 8 p.m. Eastern. Pier Giorgio Frassati. EWTN Live with me, Father Mitch Pacwa, tomorrow at 8 p.m. Eastern on EWTN TV and Radio. You're listening to this special 4th of July edition of the Sunrise Morning Show. I'm Anna Mitchell, happy to be joined in studio by Sunrise Morning Show legal and political analyst Ken Craycraft. You can find him online at craycraftlaw.com. He's a professor at Mount St. Mary's Seminary and the Athenaeum of Ohio. Ken, good morning. Good morning, Annie. Nice to be with you today. It is good to have you here. And on this 4th of July, we're going to be reflecting on our current political, cultural, legal situation, sort of in light of the the founding principles of our country. And so first of all, just to sort of lay the groundwork here, how have you seen the country, shall we say, 
develop or shift, yeah. even within our lifetimes. Yeah. Well, you know, every generation says, oh, the times, oh, the morals. So right. <laughs> every generation has its unique issues and pathologies, perhaps. But I think we're seeing some unprecedented ones in our culture these days. Um, we're seeing changes to, uh, to cultural ideas and notions and moral notions in public life that that would have almost been unthinkable for many of us. So we're seeing a lot of a lot of changes in this time of uh, national celebration of uh, of uh, American independence. It's a time to to think about those changes and to wonder how we got where we are and where we're going from here. Well, it is interesting because, of course, our our political world is going to shift based on how the culture is shifting. Um, you wouldn't so much think that the legal situation would necessarily, but of course, we see that a lot now too. Absolutely, we do. I mean, politically, for example, you know, even 20 years ago, nobody ever would have taken seriously a candidate who espoused socialism, for example, sure. saying that I'm a socialist or offering socialism as a as an, uh, viable political alternative in American public life uh, is is unprecedented, and we've never seen anything like that. And we have to ask ourselves, first of all, is it consistent with American ideals? And if it is, you know, where do we go from here? And if it's not, how did we get here? That's just one example of the political upheaval that we're seeing right now. Certainly. Let's just talk about the culture right now and uh, the the shift we've seen in, in morality in particular and how that's been reflected in the courts. Yeah. Culturally, we've seen uh, the shifts, especially when it comes to hot-button issues of sexual identity and gender identity and sexual orientation, so-called SOGI laws that have mm -hmm. arisen around the country. The feminist movement led to the gay rights movement, has led to the mainstreaming of, of gender and transsexualist ideology. Cultural shift has been dramatic. And on both sides of the debate, as we think about American independence and what the ideals of American life mean, both sides of the debate claim that they are representing the true ideal of what it means to be an American. And it makes us scratch our heads sometimes and say, well, who's right? And, and how do you adjudicate? Well, there are the tensions right there because you have the, the crowd that's saying, well, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, right? And this is my life, my liberty, and my pursuit of happiness. This is my truth. And then you have those of us, particularly on the Catholic end of the spectrum here, looking at, well, where is my religious freedom to say that I don't believe that what you're doing is in line with my faith? That's where the rubber hits the road. And that leads to the, the, the legal shift in American public life, because we've seen, for example, in 2014, the Supreme Court decision, which basically told states that states could no longer outlaw marriage uh, other than between a, one man and one woman. So one side champions as the instantiation of American rights, whereas on the, other, on the other side, as you've mentioned, we see that as the instantiation of inhibiting American rights, the right to religious freedom because of what it implies for other things in, in public life. We see similar things with abortion. Abortion laws right now, we see an amazing extreme in abortion legislation right now. We see some states that are legalizing abortion for any reason at any time. Time, uh, up to uh, basically uh, legalizing infanticides. And on the other hand, we see ca states who have made abortion illegal in almost all cases. And again, on, in both cases, the rationale invokes American ideals of liberty. 
I actually think there's a, a deeper problem here and a deeper debate with the very notion of the individual rights-based mm -hmm. polity, cultural and legal and political polity upon which uh, the country is faced. What I tell my students is that, look, we're all liberals. That is to say that the American founding is the great experiment in liberalism. And so when we talk about American politics, we're talking about conservative liberals and liberal liberals, <laughs> whether <laughs> yeah. whether it's from the extreme right of the, of the Republican Party or the extreme left of the Democrat Party. They're all still liberals. I think what we're seeing right now, Annie, is a challenge of that idea. Hmm. Uh, we're seeing Catholic intellectuals and other intellectuals saying, maybe we need to rethink not just federalism and states' rights and things like that, but the very notion of liberal individual rights and how that affects public life and what what we need to think more deeply about that in terms of, of, of religious liberty and other issues, but even broader issues of self-governance. Yeah. Can you unpack that a little bit, this debate that's been going on, particularly in Catholic intellectual circles? So what are kind of the the various sides that are that are in this debate right now? Well, there, there are different ways to frame the debate. I think that it's been framed best by a, a recent very important book by Patrick Deneen, mm -hmm. uh, a Notre Dame political philosopher. Uh, who has written a book called Why Liberalism Failed. Essentially what Professor Deneen argues is that liberalism has failed, and the reason that it has failed is because it has succeeded. In other words, he's arguing against the idea that what we need to fix liberalism is more liberalism. And the, the, the gravamen of, the, of his complaint is that liberal ideas of individual liberty and individualism erode at the kind of community-based lives that Americans have had for some period of time throughout history, but which, which is completely eroding now. And what Deneen argues, and I think there's a lot of merit to this, is that this is precisely because of the liberalist individualism at the heart of the American founding. So when, for example, Catholics complain about an erosion of community, but also champion the individual rights at the heart of the founding, we have to ask ourselves, are we advocating two things that contradict yes. one another. This is something that that I have thought about a lot is whether the idea or the dream, I guess you could say, of democracy is actually compatible with the ideals of Catholicism, with the faith that is foundational for all of us. And I think that debate is has been spurred by this cultural crisis that we see mm -hmm. because for many years we understood that, well, liberalism offers us a kind of uh, broad set of procedures under which any different notion of the good life may flourish as long as it doesn't impede on somebody else's. What we're learning and what we're finding out is that isn't necessarily true and that the notion of the good life is not a formal one in liberalism, but rather a substantive one. And that's what Deneen and others are arguing, is that political liberalism doesn't just give us a set of procedures by which different notions of the good life may prevail, but rather that liberalism is itself an instantiation of a substantive view of the good life, namely that we are all radical, autonomous individuals, and that in turn has an effect of eroding the natural communities that we have been able to celebrate sort of as a residue of pre-liberal or pre-modern ideas of community. Well, I mean, democracy is kind of a Protestant ideal, is it not? I mean, you look at the Protestant Revolution, and it was this idea that I can decide for myself what my faith is. It is. The great uh, political philosopher John Locke 
define the church as nothing but the voluntary congregation of like-minded people. In other words, for Locke, the, the very idea of church is voluntary. That is to say, it isn't an organic or much less a, a divine institution. Rather, it's a human institution that just happens to be the collection of people who already agree about something. Well, I, I, I tell my students all the time that uh, Protestantism and liberalism are the religious and political examples of the same moral anthropology, and that's a moral anthropology of a radical individualism that cuts against the kinds of natural organic communities that we've long identified with the church and with the common good uh, as represented by the rich history of Catholic social thought. As the religious aspect of Protestantism as he wrote it, all that's left is the political aspect of Protestantism. And so it becomes hostile not only to Protestant religious ideas, but Catholic ones as well. And so, and this is the rise of secularism. So we have an individualism that erodes, that tends to erode the very idea of community, and then we have a secularism that accompanies it that erodes the very idea of religion and public life. And we find ourselves really at kind of a crossroads as we celebrate our independence, asking ourselves, what is it that we've wrought, and, and, and how do we fix it if there is a fix? But I really think that, um, that intelligent Catholics who, who care about public life and care about the church really re need to rethink the very notion of individual rights and rights language. Mm -hmm. I know that things have been written about um, the abuse of rights or people getting carried away with rights. Maybe the problem is rights in general. And maybe as Catholics, we need to think more in terms of fundamental ideas about common good and community life uh, rather than individual rights. Because individual rights, at the end of the day, are claims that we all have against each other. The a Catholic moral anthropology doesn't begin with us having claims claims against each other, but rather with obligations toward each other. And we Catholics need to speak Catholic to one another so that we can speak Catholic to the world. And if we're speaking the world's language to the world, we don't have any hope of being the kind of uh, leaven in the world that's going to change anything. We've been talking to our legal and political analyst, Ken Craycraft. You can find Ken online at craycraftlaw.com and the seminary he teaches at, athenaeum.edu. Ken, thank you so much. Thank you, Annie. It's great to be with you today. It was great to have you. That will do it for this special 4th of July edition of the Sunrise Morning Show. Have a happy, safe, and blessed Independence Day. For Matt Swaim and Paul Lockman, I'm Anna Mitchell. May God bless you and keep you and grant you his peace. On this 4th of July, let's begin the Sunrise Morning Show with a prayer for freedom of religion, our first freedom. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. O God, our Creator, from your provident hand we have received our right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. You have called us as your people and given us the right and the duty to worship you, the only true God, and your Son, Jesus Christ. Through the power and working of your Holy Spirit, you call us to live out our faith in the midst of the world, bringing the light and saving truth of the gospel to every corner of society. We ask you to bless us in our vigilance for the gift of religious liberty. Give us the strength of mind and heart to readily defend our freedoms when they are threatened. Give us courage in making our voices heard on behalf of the rights of your church 
and the freedom of conscience of all people of faith, so that with every trial withstood and every danger overcome, for the sake of our children, our grandchildren, and all who come after us, this great land will always be one nation, under God, indivisible, with liberty and justice for all. Amen. Good morning and welcome to this special 4th of July edition of the Sunrise Morning Show. I'm Anna Mitchell and we have an interesting show ahead. A conversation with Dr. Marcelino D'Ambrosio about the Founding Fathers and the Bible. We'll catch up with Dr. Kevin Vost who will tell us about Blessed Pierre Giorgio Frassati whose feast day is today. Cardinal Raymond Burke will join us to discuss Our Lady of America. We'll get a 4th of July recipe from Rita Heikenfeld and wrap things up with Dr. Matthew Bunsen talking about the Catholic Founding Fathers. We'll get started after a quick break. It's the Sunrise Morning Show. Looking for peace? Longing for joy? God is calling you to know and love Jesus Christ like never before and help others do the same. God is calling you to bring Ignatian prayer into the suffering world to work for the new evangelization. Here's your opportunity. Go to LordTeachMeToPray.com. Order the free digital training and facilitator manual. LordTeachMeToPray.com. Click on the red button now. God is calling you. Underwritten by Lord Teach Me To Pray. Support from Angel Studios. This July 4th from Angel Studios, who brought you his only son and the chosen, comes a true story of courage and redemption. Sound of Freedom, starring Jim Caviezel, who portrayed Jesus in The Passion, and Academy Award winner Mira Sorvino. Inspired by remarkable acts of bravery, Sound of Freedom unveils the true events of a dangerous mission to save young, innocent lives. A story that shares hope and the power of human resilience. Sound of Freedom. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. In theaters July 4th. This past year has been a crazy roller coaster ride, but you have the power to get your business back on track by underwriting the Sunrise Morning Show. Weekday mornings, your message will reach millions of engaged Catholic listeners across the U.S. and around the globe who want to know more about and support Catholic businesses and organizations. To get national exposure for your business, ministry, or nonprofit on the Sunrise Morning Show, email me, Leah, at sacredheartradio.com. That's Leah, at sacredheartradio.com. From Rome to your home, EWTN's Vatican Bureau lets you watch all of the important events from Rome, even if you don't have a TV. Using the latest technology, we've made it possible to watch the latest news from the Holy See, all delivered directly to your home. It's easy. Watch live on EWTN YouTube and follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. EWTN, the Global Catholic Network. You're listening to the Sunrise Morning Show. I'm Anna Mitchell. Dr. Marcellino D'Ambrosio joining us from the Crossroads Initiative, DRItaly.com. Doc, welcome back. Hey, thanks, Sarah. Okay, so many of our founding fathers were deists. Can you remind us, first of all, what they believed about the nature of God? Sure. Do you mind if we back up a little bit? You just kind of go back a little bit to, to some things that happened in the Reformation and how that laid the, the just kind of the groundwork for what what our founding fathers the way they approached religion right after the reformation uh, the violence began and uh, be, beginning very early in, in luther's lifetime uh, there was a rebellion of people who wanted to go further than luther and wanted to change society and that uh, and it just one after another various kinds of wars of religion between protestants and catholics arose in europe that went on for about 100 and 50 years. Um, in, in the middle of that, 
in the, in the 1600s. There's a 30-year war between Catholics and Protestants in, in Germany. And in that 30-year war, over 20% of the German population was killed. It was, it was really unbelievably brutal. And, and, and as a result of this, some people said, you know, if people are fighting like this over Revelation, uh, over God's revealed Word, maybe we really don't need Revelation. This seems really irrational. Why, why don't we come up with a rational approach to religion that everybody can agree with, based on reason? And, and that's the beginning, really, of the Enlightenment and the beginning of deism. And, and, and the Enlightenment was, was uh, you know, a reaction. And I think we have to remember this, um, a reaction to scandal caused by Christians. And this is one of the reasons why John Paul II, in the year 2000 at the Jubilee, we, there was a great amount of repentance for the sins of our fathers as well as for our own sins, you know, in the history of of, of the of, and this is not you know something that that necessarily the church as, as such is is guilty of it's it's individual Christian rulers and people who did stuff like this you know mm-hmm. but anyway the bottom line is uh, people were uh, a lot of people uh, took approach to religion where they cut out everything that couldn't be proved by reason including the miracles of Jesus including the resurrection of Jesus. And cutting out, it was actually something done literally. A guy like Thomas Jefferson, who I admire in a lot of ways, and many of us do, um, Thomas Jefferson took a scissors to the Bible and came up with the Thomas Jefferson Bible, which anybody today could get a copy of if they want. But it, he, he cuts all that stuff out, and what's, mm. what, what remains is the moral teaching of Jesus. Um, belief in God, a creator, belief in... in um, the golden rule and and the the norms of of loving one another and all and the beautiful teaching of of the Lord along these lines, um, but you know no miracles, no supernatural, no resurrection, that's all gone. Jesus is a great moral teacher, and that's kind of what what happens in the Enlightenment. Not necessarily to all of our founding fathers, you know, but but actually um, to a good many of them. Even those who are we would we would say were Orthodox Christians were kind of influenced by this. And honestly, I, I think this influences a lot of people today in, in their basic approach to God, subconsciously in our country. Sure. And Dr. D'Ambrosio, what do you think is the, the Christian response to this? Because we do believe in the natural law, though many in our world today don't even know what the natural law is anymore. But isn't this a logical conclusion based on the natural law? Because miracles are not natural. Yeah, I mean, when it comes to the natural law, you know, uh, first of all, it's the natural law basically is all about how, what do we see in nature, and in human nature particularly, um, that is very clear, and 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 what is what in human nature? How do we, really we need to cooperate with the law that we see inscribed in our nature? as God has created us. You know, the great thing about the Enlightenment, if we look at where things are today, the religion of the Enlightenment, the deists, had a very strong sense of obligation and duty yeah. to, to God, and, and, and that there would be a reckoning. There is life after death, and there's a reckoning, um, and, and we need to be doing good. We need to be doing right. And so we look at our human nature, for example, freedom. And, you know, the, the Declaration of Independence comes right out of um, the, the idea of natural law, uh, that we are created free, and, and all people, all human beings, 
are created, therefore, equal in the image and likeness of God. You know, to have that, that mentality, it, that, that says a lot, and it means a lot about human dignity. So natural law uh, approach to things is really good. Um, it's just not quite enough. And, and the reason why it's not quite enough is because we can know what's good, but does that mean that we have the ability to do what's good? Um, St. Paul had a little, a few things to say about that in Romans 7. No, we end up doing things that, that we don't want to do and that we, we know are wrong that act contrary to our nature. And, and so, and we see a lot of this today in our society, obviously. Um, but, but, you know, so knowing what's right and wanting to do what's right is great, but we need grace. Mm-hmm. This is, you know, this is, this is the deal that, that Augustine fought for back in the fifth century. You know, it's not, God doesn't just help those who help themselves. You know, that's mm-hmm. Benjamin Franklin. That's not the Bible. God helps those <laughs> who can't help themselves. Mm-hmm. And I think for, for us as Christians, we, we need to get in touch with the fact that the power of grace has transformed our lives, and we need to be able to share with people not only, you know, what the demands of God are based on natural law, but that the Lord can make us new people through the power of the Holy Spirit. You know, that's my story. That was my experience, and that's, that, that's what I share with people who are in this position. I don't just argue philosophy with them. I want to share with them the power of God to transform people. And by the way, is God limited by nature? Well, God, you know, this is the amazing thing about nature. Have you noticed we're still figuring out nature? Yeah. There's a whole lot of things. There's a whole lot of things that we don't know about nature. And um, God, God isn't limited by our understanding of nature. He has created nature. He is sovereign. He's not going to violate it, but he can accelerate it. He can work uh, through it, you know, around it. Um, so this is this is an interesting idea of, of the Enlightenment people, generally speaking, against miracles, is that God's not going to violate nature. But they had a very ironclad idea of nature, and we've learned a lot more about it. Like, you know, Einstein's theory of relativity, nature's a lot, a lot more dynamic and a lot more mysterious than we know. So how God works... When he when he works a miracle, um, he 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 does something that can't be explained by what we understand. Um, but but he, we don't really think necessarily that he's violating nature when he does it. We've been talking to Dr. Marcellino D'Ambrosio. We'll have Dr. Italy linked at sunrisemorningshow.com. Doc, thanks so much. Hey, great being on the show. You're listening to a special Fourth of July edition of the Sunrise Morning Show. We'll be right back. Central Fabricators is proud to support the Sunrise Morning Show and encourages other Catholic business owners to do the same. Central Fabricators knows that the Sunrise Morning Show is where you'll get the news from the Catholic perspective while keeping you up to date on what's happening in the Vatican as well. It's also a great way to keep in touch with the Catholic faith throughout the week. Central Fabricators, based in Cincinnati, Ohio, has been in business for more than 70 years. On the web at centralfabricators.com. That's centralfabricators.com. For more than 150 years, the Comboni missionaries have served the poorest and most forgotten people. With our founder, St. Daniel Comboni, as an inspiration, we work for the full development of the human person through evangelization, education, and advocacy. Your donations make a huge impact, and 95% are used to fund our many projects. Find out more at ComboniMissionaries.org. That is ComboniMissionaries.org. Do you use a single brew coffee maker at your home or in your workplace? The Carmelite Monks of Wyoming have single-use coffee pods especially for you. 
Go to the Mystic Monk Coffee site through our site, sunrisemorningshow.com, to browse the monk shot options. When you check out, we'll earn a commission. And why not brew it straight into a Sunrise Morning Show mug or travel mug? You can find those in our online store. Buy a mug and link for some monk shots for your Keurig at sonrisemorningshow.com. Get an insider's look at the latest information from EWTN. Sign up for WINGS, EWTN's weekly email newsletter. Get the latest information about live events, special features, and guests. Connect with EWTN on YouTube, Facebook, and Twitter. Just go to EWTN.com and click on the WINGS link to sign up. Don't miss a minute of all that's happening at EWTN. Get your WINGS today. Dr. Kevin Vost joining us on the Sunrise Morning Show. He is the author of many books. The one pertinent to this discussion is Hounds of the Lord, Great Dominican Saints, Every Catholic Should Know. Dr. Vost, welcome back to the program. Good morning, Anna. So July 4th is the feast day of blessed Pierre Giorgio Frassati, who I think personally does not get enough attention in the United States precisely because his feast falls on that day. So can you just start out... Who was he? Can you give us an overview of his life, and how did he come to love Christ so much? Sure. He, he is a fascinating young man, so well worth knowing. He was born uh, April 6, 1901, and he died only 24 years later, on the 4th of July, 1925. He lived in uh, Turin, Italy, which was far to the north of Italy, near, uh, around the, the region of the Alps. So he was a young man who just loved to climb mountains, a very, very physically impressive young man. Uh, he was born into a very wealthy family. His father founded and ran a newspaper called La Stampa, or the press, that still exists today. Uh, his mother was a painter. Some of her artworks were possessed by the king of Italy. So it was a very, very influential, powerful family he was born into. But he's known for this great love for the poor. He spent uh, vast amounts of time you know, working with Catholic societies that, that helped the poor people. So just, just an amazing person, born into the lap of wealth, but his just heart went out to people you know, who were not as blessed as he was in, in the material goods of life. It kind of is fitting in a way, Dr. Vost, isn't it, that his feast would be July 4th, because he really was a fighter for the cause of freedom, wasn't he? Yes, he, he, he sure was. In the book, I kind of highlight the fact that in our own American history, uh, you know, of course, Thomas Jefferson wrote the Declaration of Independence, and John Adams was one of the signers. John Adams later became our second president, and Jefferson the third, and they both actually died on the 4th of July, 50 years later. So kind of an amazing, you know, coincidence there of, of independence. And then 99 years later, over in Italy, this is when, you know, Pier Giorgio Frassati died, who was also a great defender of, of freedom. In fact, the same year he became a third-order Dominican is when Benito Mussolini and the fascist party came to power. And he stroke out strongly against that. You know, this is before, you know, all the implications of fascism became clear. But Pier Giorgio, for, for, you know, saw the direction it was heading, you know, really chided some Catholics at the time who were cooperating with Mussolini. So it's just totally uh, uh, kind of amazing, you know, in God's providence that he, we do celebrate his feast day on this great day of independence within our own country. And, I mean, he really was just a normal guy in a lot of ways, though, wasn't he? Oh, he, he was. He was. You know, he, he loved being physical. He loved climbing uh, mountains. He loved hanging out with his friends. They even had a, a, a group they put together called the uh, Tippy Loxy that they've translated it as uh, the, the Sinister Ones or even the Swindlers and Swindlerettes. And they would, you know, <laughs> joke with each other. They even took, took false names like uh, uh, Giorgio's was Robespierre. 
named himself after the villain of the French Revolution. You know, so they they just love to joke and have fun like other kids. He loved to play uh, play pool, climb mountains, ride his bicycle. But though he had these simple joys of life and loved his friends, he also always had this great passion for the poor. For example, they said he would often come to different uh, events and meetings, and he'd be all sweaty. And they're like, you know, why are you so sweaty? And it was because he rode his bike instead of taking the train so he could save that money from the train and give it to the poor. Mm-hmm. Or when he would have to tra- take a train further away, the joke was people would say, well, why do you ride third class? And he'd say, because there is no fourth class. Mm-hmm. So, again, you know, he was going to use that money, uh, you know, for those who needed it more than he did. And John Paul II, who beatified him, who also loved the outdoors, as Pierre Giorgio did, John Paul referred to him as a man of the Beatitudes. What did he mean by that? Well, of course, you know, in the Sermon of the Mount, in Matthew 5, where you know, Christ fully lays out those Beatitudes, you know, he's telling us, you know, blessed are the pure in heart and the, and the meek and so forth. Well, this, you know, pretty much embodied uh, Pierre Giorgio Frassati, probably particularly that poverty of spirit, because his heart so much went out to the poor. But also the Beatitudes, you know, are, are a sense of, of blessedness. And people who knew Pierre Giorgio, he had to face a lot of difficulties, actually. He, he loved a young girl that the, the parents didn't consider would be worthy of his class. We could not pursue that. Uh, his parents' marriage was tenuous. He didn't want to do anything that, that could lead them towards divorce. Uh, his father discouraged him from entering the field that he wanted to, which was mining engineering. So he had a lot of things kind of working against him, but he always maintained this happiness, that this joy, you know, that came from the charity of Christ. So yeah, a man of the Beatitudes, the kind of person who lives out that Sermon on the Mount. Dr. Bose, could you tell us a little bit about how Pierre Giorgio died? Sure. It's, it's very fascinating. You know, he was this, you know, very vibrant young man. The stories were that he was you know, very physically attractive, a tall and well-built man you know, who loved to climb the mountains, ride his bike. Uh, but it was in June of uh, yeah, 1925 that his clothes kind of started to hang on him. He wasn't looking quite as healthy, and he contracted a pretty serious sickness that put him to bed at the same time that his grandmother uh, was dying. Hmm. And it was said that this is late June, uh, early July of 1925, that Pierre Giorgio would kind of struggle to go out of the hall and visit his grandmother. His grandmother died, I believe, July 1st, and it was said that even at that time his parents kind of got on him for not getting up and being more helpful in dealing with the grandmother's funeral. But they didn't realize that his illness was not just something that was going to pass, which you would expect in a 24-year-old man, but it was actually terminal. Yet they didn't find out until like the day before it was a rare strain of poliomyelitis, and the only medicine available that, that might have treated it was in Paris, France. You know, it was a long way away. And even at that point, it had advanced to such a stage that medicine is probably going to make no good. So the family was just shocked to realize that he was on his deathbed and didn't know until right at the very end. And he still exhibited a great love for the poor, even in those moments of death. That's right. You know, one of the last things he did was scribble a note which told the people around him that, that there was a pawn ticket he he'd, you know, had held back for someone, some other service that needed to be done you know, for the poor he was taking care of. So even his, his dying thoughts were on those poor, taking care of those people that, that he you know, obligated himself uh, to help. The book is Hounds of the Lord, Great Dominican Saints Every Catholic Should Know. And Dr. Vost, if listeners want to find a copy to learn about Pierre Giorgio and many other Dominican saints, where can they find it? Well, if they'd like to start by looking at my website, it's drvost.com, just drvost.com. I don't sell them myself, but I think they can probably get them through the Sunrise Amazon store or ask their local Catholic bookstore to get a copy. You're listening to a special 4th of July edition of the Sunrise Morning Show. We'll be right back. This is Father Rob Jack with the Catechism Moment. When we speak of divine revelation, 
What we are talking about is what God is telling us about himself. The things that God tells us are utterly mysterious and beyond our human reason. When we as Catholics talk about revelation, we say that there is only one source of divine revelation, and that is Jesus Christ. At the same time, we also profess that there are two distinct modes of transmission, namely sacred scripture and apostolic tradition. Paragraph 81 states that sacred scripture is the speech of God as it is put down in writing under the breath of the Holy Spirit. This is manifested in the 72 books of the Bible. While paragraph 81 describes sacred tradition, it really doesn't clearly state what is contained in the tradition. For that, we need to look to paragraph 76. In there, we read that apostolic tradition contains the transmission of the gospel orally by the apostles who handed on by the spoken word of their preaching and by the example they gave and by the institutions they established of what they have received, whether from the lips of Christ, from his way of life and works, or whether they had learned it at the promptings of the Holy Spirit. This paragraph gives us the clearest expression of what is meant when we use the word apostolic tradition. As Catholics, we believe that there is more to our faith than the Word of God in Scripture. Our faith is a living faith, and it's not just a set of rules and creeds and doctrines, but an ongoing life with Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit, in which we are commanded to probe more deeply the mysteries that have been revealed, the truth that has been exposed, and the love that is manifested to us every day by Jesus and his Church through his sacraments. That's a daily adventure for us, and to dive into Scripture and tradition always yields for us great and wonderful fruits. Happy Fourth of July. Thank you for listening to the Sunrise Morning Show. I'm Matt Swaim, joined now by Tom Farr, president of the Religious Freedom Institute. Tom, happy Fourth of July. Happy Fourth to you, Matt. Glad to be with you. Well, there are so many freedoms that we celebrate uh, as Americans that a lot of Nations don't have enshrined in law, and or at least they didn't have them from the beginning of their founding. Why, among all the rights out there, was religious freedom something that was important for the founders to protect? Well, it's an important question, and to me the answer is very clear. The founders wanted to protect the free exercise of religion for all Americans and for all American religious communities in order to keep religion in our public life. The purpose of the Establishment Clause which today is often thought designed to keep religion out of our public lives, was precisely the opposite. It was to keep government out of religion, that is to say, to keep uh, government from monopolizing religion, from being involved in deciding what religion is good and what religion is not. The purpose for the founders was to engage all of our religious groups in our public lives, including our politics, including deciding what the common good is, how it should be reflected in law and public policy. And the reason, this is just throughout the writings of the founders, all of them, whether they were religious themselves or not, they wanted religion in our public lives because they believed our republic would fail without virtuous citizens, and they thought that religion was a major source of virtue. So they wanted citizens to decide, including religious communities, uh, what our what our laws and public policies should be when it comes to these issues of the common good, not government. That is to say, they didn't want unelected bureaucrats. Uh, they did want legislatures to be involved and elected presidents, 
in order to determine what our public policies ought to be. So the point is, free exercise of religion is important because it involves the American citizens and their religious communities in deciding what the common good is. Well, you just pointed a major finger back at you, me, and everybody listening in the sense that you know, there has to be something besides the law that holds us to virtue and that faith does that, especially Judeo-Christian faith and especially my Catholic faith, Thomas, uh, that tells me that I'm supposed to be a saint, right? And, you know, that's that's so important in order to preserve a nation that has that focus on liberty. If we abuse that liberty, then everything goes to pieces. Well, that's quite right. And I think there are a number of questions in what you said there, Matt, but to me the key question is what's the role of government in making you a saint? And the answer is to give you the freedom to be a saint and to give you the freedom to exercise your religion in our public lives. Your being a saint and my being a saint and other Catholics who believe this and Christians who believe this is important to us as individuals. But as far as I'm concerned, our Lord is also calling us to be citizens of our country, to take our fundamental Catholic beliefs and propose them. These are the phrases of uh, John Paul the Great. We don't impose, we propose. So as we live to be saints, we should be living those publicly, not just within uh, our churches, within our houses of worship, within our prayer lives, all of the above, but as public matters as well. And so the founders, who were not Catholics, we did have Catholics involved in the signing of the Declaration of Independence, but not in this First Amendment. They were Protestants, and yet they built better than they knew. They wanted all religious groups to be in our public lives. So, sure, be a saint, and that includes living as a citizen in our country and and having an impact on our public policies. Yeah, not just having the freedom to gather in uh, you know, our sanctuaries for Mass, but also to be able to say, you know what, my Catholic faith informs the way I'm going to approach my marriage, and it informs what I understand about marriage and its role in the common good. And so I have to be able to articulate that. I have to not only be able to articulate that, I have to be able to say, you know what, you can't restrict my right to articulate that. And you mentioned that the founders built better than, than they knew on this. Uh, you got Quakers, right? You got Puritans, You've got deists, uh, you've got Anglicans all in the mix on this thing. And, uh, I mean, just think about even the kind of conversation that would have had to have happened in order for all of those groups to play nicely together. You have to create that space where there's free expression and free ability to live out the implications of your beliefs. Precisely so. And they understood they did not want government to sit down and decide what the common good is. They wanted citizens, Quakers, as you say, Baptists, others, ultimately Catholics, because they did not exclude Catholics from this. Many of them were anti-Catholic, but they understood Catholics and even uh, Muslims and Hindus. The, the idea is religious free exercise. So they wanted all of us to debate the common good, understanding that there were, there were and are today very, very different understandings of what that is. This doesn't exclude the secular arguments, but that's not the problem today. The problem today is that people want to exclude the religious arguments from our political life, from our public life. And this is tough for Catholics, I think, many Catholics, 
to understand because they've been brought up believing that somehow the Establishment Clause prevents us from doing this, precisely wrong as far as the founders were concerned. And I would argue our responsibility as Catholics, you mentioned marriage. Well, we have uh, a Supreme Court decision uh, saying that same-sex marriage is a fundamental right. So what's our responsibility here? I think what we have to do is take our own beliefs and distill them into public policy arguments that are consistent with the way that we understand we should be as Catholics. We have to be smart and persuasive to our fellow citizens. Unfortunately, I fear that many Catholics don't do that. They think they're not supposed to do that, or they think that it's discriminatory to argue against same-sex marriage. No, it's not. It's about Christian love. It's about an understanding of what marriage truly is or what a human being is when it comes to abortion. So we have everything we need, and that, by the way, includes the right to do what we are called to do as Catholics, the rights created by our founders. And to recognize that uh, if you remove, quote-unquote, religion from the public square, uh, really what you're doing is you're removing a form of it that is monotheistic and believes in a transcendent and supernatural God. If religion is essentially what it, how it fu- has functioned throughout the centuries, is the set of principles that ties you back to a way of acting uh, that overarches everything you do think and believe, then we do have a form of secular religion in public life that will fill up that void. There is never just an emptiness where religion disappears. There's always something that goes in and fills that spot. I'm reminded of the great quote by Flannery O'Connor when she says, those who have no absolute values cannot let the relative remain merely relative. They're always raising it to the level of the absolute. So even tolerance itself does not end up meaning everybody gets to play along. It means one kind of person gets to play along. That's what happens, as you say, when you have no objective referent, when you think that I am the source of uh, all good or my opinions are the source of ultimate reality, this is a huge mistake. It's one that the founders understood and certainly one that our religion understands. In Dignitatis Humanae, the great Catholic declaration of religious liberty from 1965, it says the state should favor religion. And Religion, in this case, is not simply the revealed religion, but the rationality of religion, too. This is another thing that the secularists have succeeded in doing, and it has an impact on our younger generation, and that is that religion is nothing but irrational, emotive superstition. Well, if that were true, it, it probably would be the case that we don't need this as part of our public policy. But the great Catholic tradition of faith and reason, John Paul the Great's uh, encyclical Fides et Ratio, faith and reason are the two wings by which we fly to God. Well, they are the two wings by which we convince our fellow citizens that religion is worthy of their, of their consideration. And it is that understanding, as you said, Matt, that there's something greater than, than us. If we can construct reality then all that is left is power. Those who are able to gain power are able to suppress those, oppress those who who don't have power. So, again, our founders understood all of this, and it was because, frankly, of their very Protestant understanding of original sin. That's why we have a a First Amendment and, and the separation of powers. That's why they wanted the free exercise of religion among religious communities to limit the power of government. 
So there's a lot here, but it really does come down to the value of, 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 uh, of our system of government for Catholics. Catholics have to take advantage of that, though. They have to step out. Before we let you go, uh, please, uh, if you could, uh, we're talking with Tom Farr uh, right now with uh, Religious Freedom Institute. Uh, tell us a little bit about your organization. Sure. The Religious Freedom Institute derives from a decade of work at Georgetown University, where I and my colleagues were doing primarily academic work, funding scholars all over the world to investigate the meaning and value of religious freedom in various places. Uh, A few years back, we decided we wanted to take the scholarship and move it into the world. So that's what we have in the Religious Freedom Institute. We have action teams that take evidence-based arguments about the meaning and value of religious freedom, which we think can be valuable for every community, every country, every culture in the world. And we will give you the, the arguments to back this up. So here's the key to what we're talking about this morning, Matt. If we lose religious freedom as it has been understood in this country for over 200 years, it cannot be replicated anywhere in the world. The stakes are very, very high. If you want to know more about us, go to religiousfreedominstitute.org, look at our action teams, and see what we're doing around the world. All right, well, thank you so much, Thomas Farr, president of the Religious Freedom Institute, for giving us a little perspective, a little something to chew on. And have a blessed day. Happy Fourth of July. Happy Fourth to you. I'm Matt Swaim. Hope you're having a happy Fourth of July. Thanks for listening to the Sunrise Morning Show. It's 35 past the hour. Have you considered energizing your business marketing plan? The Sunrise Morning Show is heard across the U.S. on more than 360 Catholic radio stations, reaching millions of engaged listeners in the heart of the morning commute. You can speak directly to a loyal group of like-minded people who prefer to use businesses who share their faith and values. Find out more about underwriting The Sunrise Morning Show by emailing me, Leah, at sacredheartradio.com. That's Leah at sacredheartradio.com. What does the church say about infant baptism? The Gospel of Mark tells us that Jesus taught that the kingdom of heaven belongs to little children. Since baptism is the entry to the church, it is only logical that babies are baptized to put them in possession of what God has given as their natural right. Infant baptism gives us an unquestionable affirmation of a basic fact of our Christian faith. That is, our faith and our salvation are not ours to choose or earn, but are gifts from God. It also reminds parents and godparents of their duty to bring children up to understand and follow the teachings of the church as Christ taught. Parents who opt to let their children make their own decisions about what religion, if any, they will choose later in life, fail to grasp the responsibility they share in the salvation of their children. For many parents, carrying out this responsibility to raise their children in the ways of the church aids them in living out their own faith. For more information, contact your local pastor or refer to the Catechism of the Catholic Church. Paragraphs 1250 through 1252. For Sacred Heart Radio, this is Deacon Bill Mullaney.
joining us again on the Sunrise Morning Show, Dr. Matthew Bunsen, Executive Editor and Washington Bureau Chief of EWTN News. Good morning, Doc. Good morning. Great to be with you. It is great to have you as we celebrate our Independence Day. And today we're going to be talking about some of the Catholic heroes of the Revolutionary War. Interestingly, to me anyway, the ones that we are featuring today were all European-born, correct? Well, that's absolutely right. Uh, it's worth talking about them, A, because these are truly great heroes, they're great Catholic heroes, but they also demonstrate, I think, uh, something that uh, has been overlooked uh, over the, the generation since the American Revolution, and that is the, the role of Catholics, not just in the Continental Army, but the role of foreign-born Catholics. Now, we can certainly say that almost every Catholic in, in who was in the Continental Army was largely going to be foreign-born for the most part uh, because we had a Catholic population by the end of the American Revolution of about 25,000 Catholics total uh, in the new country out of a population of about 4 million. Having said that, it is estimated, and again, we, it's hard to know exactly how many Catholics there were in the Continental Army, but estimates are that there were probably about 5% of the total Continental Army, so wow. that it was a massive disproportion. Uh, of Catholics in the Continental Army versus the overall Catholic population. So what does that tell us? It tells us that Catholics understood what was possibly at stake in American independence. And interesting, too, because, I mean, they were in a country that was largely anti-Catholic. Well, a future country that was largely anti-Catholic at the time. At times, toxically so. And that's uh, one of the things that uh, we sometimes overlook and, and something that George Washington, you know, the father of uh, the, the country, understood very powerfully, that uh, we had this bizarre reality that you had Catholics who were serving in his own armed forces at a time when his own armed forces would celebrate things like Guy Fawkes Day. And he recognized not just the unfairness of it, uh, but the potential missed opportunity should that hostile atmosphere continue, that if um, Catholics in America had decided, no, we, we will stake our chances with England, uh, historically as, as brutal as that was, that it was going to be very difficult for him to win the American Revolution. And we can layer into that, and here's where we bring in some of these great figures, the fact that the talent pool of Catholics who were willing to fight and to die for this fledgling army, this fledgling republic, this would-be republic, uh, also struck him as uh, one of the potentially great missed opportunities in political history, but also in military history. And so uh, let's start going through some of these Catholic heroes with apologies at the outset that we <laughs> may be butchering some names, particularly when we start with a couple of men from Poland. First off, tell us about Tadeusz Kosciusko. Well, so one of the things that uh, drew uh, so many of the European soldiers and real talent uh, was this idea of a place where Catholics might be welcome, but also where there could be freedom. Tadeusz or Tadeusz Kosciusko was a, a great statesman. He was uh, an engineer. He had fought for many years uh, for the independence of Poland. Let's remember during this period uh, in the 18th century, Poland had been carved up uh, among Russia, among Prussia, among Austria. 
And so anyone who was fighting as he was for the independence of his country and watching it fail time and time again went somewhere where his talents could be appreciated but where he might actually be able to bring about freedom and independence for a new part of the world. And that's exactly what he did. He arrived uh, in 1776 of all years and essentially presented himself um, as someone who was willing to serve in this new army, this continental army, became a colonel and served as a kind of military architect. So he was an expert in military engineering. And a little-known fact is that uh, he helped construct many of the fortifications uh, for various forts and other things for the Continental Army, including at West Point. And was also, he served under General Nathaniel Green, is that right? That's correct. And was eventually promoted to the rank of Brigadier General by a very grateful Continental Congress. Went back to Poland in 1784 with this wealth of experience in the New World and continued the fight uh, for the independence of uh, his Poland. What was interesting, though, is that um, he loved America and eventually came back uh, to what was now the United States and in a will actually left everything that he owned in the U.S. to the education uh, and to the eventual emancipation, he hoped, of the slaves in America. Wow. That's really Died in, in Switzerland in 1817, but um, really loved America. Yeah. Well, another Polish-born Catholic is considered the father of the American <laughs> Calvary. Tell us about this. Yeah, there, there are a number of fathers uh, that we're going to be talking about uh, today. Mm -hmm. well, Kazimierz Pulaski was, if Kosciuszko was a stolid engineer uh, who brought his talents for engineering, Kazimierz Pulaski brought not just a, a skill as a soldier, as a cavalry officer, but I think it's safe to say he was the single most dashing person uh, in the whole of the American Revolution, with the one or two possible exceptions. We'll talk about the Marquis de Lafayette in a little bit. But uh, another one of those figures uh, in Polish history who fought and really bled uh, for what he hoped would be the independence of his country, uh, Poland. And eventually he was driven into exile. Uh, he was brought to the attention of Ben Franklin uh, at the time when Benjamin Franklin was in France uh, trying to galvanize support among the French, especially the French court uh, for the American cause. And Franklin was really quite struck by the, this dashing figure and wrote back to uh, the, the government that uh, we have somebody here who might actually be of great value to us. Pulaski then sails to the Americas and was recognized immediately by George Washington as a real talent, uh, someone who could build something that wasn't really in existence at that point, and that was a cavalry corps uh, for the Continental Army. What there was of cavalry was disorganized, it was poorly trained, and certainly no match for the British cavalry that was renowned for its efficiency and its battlefield prowess. So Pulaski was able to do a couple things almost immediately, and that was to begin training uh, American cavalry soldiers in the rudiments of cavalry tactics. But he also helped fill them with a certain esprit de corps, a real willingness uh, to charge into battle, even though the odds were very poor. And right from the, from the start, uh, Pulaski was able to engage uh, with the enemy, 
but in really heroic fashion to the point where he at one point saved George Washington's life, I think during the Battle of Brandywine. Oh, wow. Something that, uh, of course, made Washington very grateful to him. Pulaski's personality was uh, not just as a, a skilled soldier, but it was larger than life at times, and that got him into trouble. I mean, he had um, <laughs> a lot of run-ins with a lot of different officers uh, during the American Revolution, but everyone recognized his heroism, and everyone recognized that here was somebody who could really help uh, build uh, the, the cavalry that we were going to need uh, to defeat uh, the British, and that's really something that he did. He fought in multiple battles throughout the Revolution until he was uh, himself actually shot down, uh, killed uh, during an engagement uh, in Savannah. Now, that was the father of the American Calvary. Tell us about the father of the American Navy, who is also a Catholic, but not Polish. Not Polish. Now we're moving to <laughs> Ireland, and that's uh, Commodore John Barry, uh, who you're right. He's uh, called the father of the American Navy. Now, he's been overshadowed by history. Anyone who remembers, uh, well, I don't know if they even teach this anymore, but uh, John Paul Jones is often credited as sort of the founder of the uh, American Navy. In fact, uh, John Barry is the first captain placed in command of an actual warship that was uh, commissioned uh, to, to serve in that purpose in the Continental Navy. And he was a captain in the Continental Navy by 1775. He had a long and distinguished career as a ship's captain, um, as, a, as a merchant marine, and joined uh, into the, this great cause of independence uh, and was seen immediately as somebody who brought immense skill and experience at sea. So he began outfitting and helping the U.S. Navy or the Continental Navy uh, to begin slowly, it took a while, to become the equal of at least to be able to go into battle with uh, the British Navy. And Barry held a variety of commands, uh, including one in which he was very seriously wounded in 1781 uh, during a, a four-hour naval battle with two different British ships. Now imagine we have this young navy, uh, barely called a navy at that point, uh, taking out uh, two really respected British ships. It was, as I was saying, it's, it's this remarkable struggle for hours, and uh, Barry himself was wounded during this. And for that alone, uh, he was held in great honor. And in 1797, he was uh, given the, the title of Commodore and is recognized again as uh, the, the first commissioned naval officer, but also as the first flag officer. And then, of course, was named essentially the creator and, and the person who was in charge of the entire U.S. Navy. And it was in that regard, too, that I think he left such a great legacy. Wow. And a devout Catholic. And a devout Catholic. Everyone knew uh, that any ship he was uh, captaining was a place to serve. Now, he, he had to suppress mutinies, which is the common thing at the time, but they knew that he always had the welfare of his men at heart. Now, <laughs> let's move on to, I guess you could, I, I, I think it's fair to say, the two most notable 
Catholics in the Revolutionary War, though we've just gone through um, a couple of guys that that certainly are notable here. But I do think it's fair to say that the two most notable Catholics in the American Revolutionary War were Frenchmen. Start us off by telling us about the Count de Rochambeau. The Count de Rochambeau is... um overshadowed. We, we, a lot of these uh, folks that we're talking about today have been overshadowed by other people. And de Rochambeau has been perhaps unfairly uh, overshadowed uh, by his great flamboyant colleague, uh, who everyone remembers and loves, and that, of course, is uh, the Marquis de Lafayette. Rochambeau uh, was a soldier who, a general, who was in charge of the actual French army uh, at the very end of the American Revolution. So he arrived once this alliance between uh, the the Continental Army, the the fledgling government, and France, and played an absolutely instrumental role in the defeat of the British at the Battle of Yorktown in 1781, which, of course, as anyone knows, ended the American Revolution for victory for uh, George Washington and American independence. His work as the head of this expeditionary force did something else, though. Uh, It solidified uh, the impression in the United States uh, that France truly was a great ally and that this Catholic power, uh, and Rochambeau was certainly a devout Catholic, uh, was worth the the loss of life that, that the French government itself had come through. And Rochambeau really served as the, the model for that um, at the very end of the war. Now, throughout the war, we had this other figure, the Marquis de Lafayette, uh, who uh, probably, as you say, the most famous of the, the Catholics who actually served in the American Revolution. I say that because he arrived as a, still a fairly young man uh, and helped not just in the United States to elevate the profile of Catholics in the Continental Army, but back home in France became this very powerful advocate uh, for the American cause at the French court, but also in the bigger court of French opinion. So in that sense, he played a military role, but he also played a political role that uh, everyone recognizes. And I'm always struck by the fact that... um, He went back to France after all of this, had a key role in launching the actual French Revolution in 1789, uh, was turned on a bit by almost everyone. But the one place that he was always welcome uh, was the United States. And when he went back around 1824, he was given this heroic welcome and had this grand tour across uh, what was now the United States uh, to huge crowds uh, and adulation everywhere he went. I wanted to ask you about both de Rochambeau and Lafayette's thoughts on what became of the French Revolution after the American Revolution, because people like Thomas Jefferson were really excited about what was happening in France, right? They were. Uh, There was this initial belief that uh, the ideals of the American Revolution were going to be transposed, that, that somehow the French Revolution is going to be very similar. Of course, it took such an immediate and dark turn. You could argue that there were similar sources for both, and and this is a conversation you and I can have uh, on another day. Mm -hmm. But both Lafayette and de Rochambeau, I think, were disenchanted with the way events turned. 
And at the start, uh, de Rochambeau served as a, a general. He commanded the uh, what's called the Armée du Nord. Uh, but uh, after a number of defeats, he resigned and then, of course, ran afoul of the, the reign of terror uh, and barely escaped death by the guillotine uh, and was still given a place of honor by Napoleon Bonaparte uh, and subsequently died uh, as a pensioner. Lafayette's uh, path was a little more choppy. He was... Uh, honored by the early days of the French Revolution, was eventually uh, arrested and taken by the, the Austrians, uh, spent several years in prison, returned to France with the rise of Napoleon, but never really liked Napoleon very much and was not somebody who was too eager to serve in his government. The, the problem was that he wasn't all that welcome to the, the, the Bourbons when they came back to power either. So he led a very difficult and very fine line uh, politically and socially, but he was still revered uh, by the population in both France and the United States. Yeah, absolutely. So back to that, uh, those accolades that he received in the United States as we close up our conversation today, Dr. Bunsen. How, I mean, overall, I mean, looking at Lafayette, I think specifically is a, is a good example, but overall, how did the Catholic contribution to the Revolutionary War affect George Washington specifically, his perspective on Catholics in general? Well, Washington uh, made it very clear uh, in his writings and his letter uh, to American Catholics in, I think, 1790, that he says, he writes, in fact, uh, that it is his intention that all Catholics should be recognized for their heroism. And he says uh, that uh, as well as by vigilance, you extend the influence of laws on the manner of our fellow citizens. You encourage respect for religion and inculcate by words and actions that principle of which the welfare of nations so much depends. That a superintending providence governs the events of the world and watches over the conduct of men. And he said, we have long been impatient to testify our joy and unbounded confidence on your being called by a unanimous vote to the first station of, a, of the country. This is um, the letter from Roman Catholics in America to George Washington. And George Washington wrote uh, then in reply uh, that all those who conduct themselves as worthy members of the community are equally entitled to the protection of civil government. I hope ever to see America among the foremost nations in examples of justice and liberality, and I presume that your fellow citizens will not forget the patriotic part which you took in the accomplishment of their revolution mm. and the establishment of their government or the important assistance they received from a nation in which the Roman Catholic faith is professed. Very beautiful. Did George Washington die a Catholic, do you think, Dr. Bunsen? <laughs> I am not going to go there. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I'll let you not go there. But uh, I know that there is much speculation there in is. that regard. But that'd be a fun conversation for another day. Absolutely. We will. We'll save it for another day. We're out of time right now. But we've been talking to Dr. Matthew Bunsen, executive editor and Washington bureau chief of EWTN News. Doc, it was a pleasure. Thank you so much. Oh, a joy to be with you. Likewise, for sure. All right, that'll do it for this special Independence Day edition of the Sunrise Morning Show. Thanks so much for listening. Hope you enjoyed the previous hour. On behalf of Matt Swaim, Paul Lockman, Dr. Matthew Bunsen, and all of our guests, have a fun, safe, and blessed 4th of July, everyone. 
I'm Anna Mitchell. May God bless you and keep you and grant you his peace.